Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to start working our way through this uh, great epistle. Uh, some of our great pastors and theologians have gone before us, have called uh, Ephesians the queen of the letters of Paul. Uh, it is uh, so good as far as explaining simply and profoundly uh, God's work in humanity and our call to follow after Him. And so uh, we're going to just simply work our way through this. This is called expository preaching. It's basically where we look at the text and we just sort of work our way through the book of the, uh, or through the uh, letter or through the book of the Bible that we're looking at. And the reason uh, pastors try to do this is it forces me, just like you, to deal with the tough issues of the text. And uh, so we don't miss anything from it. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, this is the Word of God. And it is useful for us uh, to grow in godliness. So give your attention to it. Spirit of God writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, though we're looking at two verses today, I pray that... Uh, just as you have shown me, you would show the church that there is great depth and few words of your Spirit-written text. Lord, enlighten our minds, embolden our hearts, and help us to see how wonderful this letter is to edify your church, to teach your people, and to bring glory to your great nature. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout the years, the format of letters have changed. They've went from scrolls uh, to email to now we have text messaging. There has been a lot of transit, uh, transition in how we communicate. Uh, over the years, as we went to letters, uh, our, you might notice that our letters here in America have are quite different than the letters that we read in the Bible. Because right at the beginning, unless it's a business letter in America, who it's going to and who it's from are not right at the beginning, unless you're reading an email. Because when you read an email, you immediately know who it's to, which would be yourself, because it's in your inbox, correct? And it's immediately you know who it's from. And that sort of... Uh, takes away that whole part where if you got a personal letter, you'd have to read down to the very bottom knowing who it's from, uh, unless it comes in an envelope and it's got a nice return address. Communication for us Americans is a huge thing. In fact, it's huge for the world. In 2006, VeriSign did an estimate that 2.25 billion emails were done a day. 2.25 billion and that was in 06. Only God knows how many emails and text messages, now that that has become the mode of communication, are going on. It's quite amazing. But one thing about any communication, the level of our interest is often peaked by who it comes from. A number of years ago, in uh, the year 2000, I had the privilege to go to Nigeria. And at that time, I had uh, been dating Amber, and things were growing uh, quite well in our relationship. And when we first got there, uh, Amber 
called me. Now, that's a phone call I would not forget. And the reason why was the bill that came with it. Uh, For an hour-long phone call, it cost us over $500. And that was in 2000. That was quite a pretty penny. But after that, we started depending quite extensively on email. And every morning, because of the time change, we were over six hours in front of where she was at on the East Coast. I would long for, I would look for, the first thing I would do in the morning would go downstairs, get on our host laptop, and look at my inbox to see if I had a letter, an email from Amber. Some days I didn't. And if you've had those times when you may have dated long distance, uh, you know what I'm talking about. There's a disappointment. There's, oh, I wish I knew what was going on. I just want to hear their thoughts and what's going on. Well, today we're going to look at the beginning part of that letter. And in a few simple words, Paul is already communicating his deep love for the church in Ephesus. The people he had been a part with in their lives and been with them and seen God do amazing things in their lives. And and now he was separated many miles. In fact... He had told them the last time he saw them that this would be the last time you would see me face to face. This letter meant something to them. Well, last week I talked a little bit about the book of Acts and what all happened at the church at Ephesus. There were a number of things going on there. And just quickly to review so that you might recap this and sort of bring this background into the letter which we're reading, there was a number of great blessings happening on in the church of Ephesus. You might remember there was demonic possession going on. The seven sons of Sceva tried to drive out the demon. And he said, I, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And the demonic possessed man beat up all these uh, seven sons so bad. And the word of Jesus, the name of Jesus was highly esteemed and so much so that people burned up 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was one coin worth a day's wage. If we were to earn $100 a day, that would be over $5 million. They burned up in scrolls. That not only was removing themselves, growing in holiness to God, but it also, they burned up a lot of money right then. A lot of security they might have had. Other good things that were happening is... Uh, Paul's teaching ministry uh, through the house of Tyrannus, through the hall of Tyrannus, excuse me, uh, was so good that Luke tells us that everyone in the province of Asia heard the gospel. Great things were happening in Ephesus. But also during his time there, great challenges were happening. I spoke about uh, last week how the Jews who initially said, Hey, Paul, don't leave. Please stay. And Paul said, I'm sorry, I have a vow to go fulfill. When he came back and he worked with them a number of weeks in the synagogue, finally they pushed them out. They began to speak evil of what was called the way. That was the New Testament term for Christianity. The Gentiles were also getting upset at Paul because he was having no small effect on their business. Remember uh, one of the great seven wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis was there. Uh, As I was preparing for this sermon, I I forgot to mention last week, that temple was seven times the size of the Parthenon. It was huge. 
And not only was it huge, it was the bank of all of the province of Asia. All the money for that whole area flowed through the temple of Artemis. And so when Demetrius got upset and saying, hey, Paul is stealing away from us, this was no small matter. This was involving economic turmoil. And as we think about our own nation and the emotions that come up with the economic turmoil that's happening here in America, think of how intensely folks must have thought that in Ephesus. Obviously, as we talked about earlier, witches and warlocks were present. They were depending on spells. There were demonic issues going on. But probably the greatest challenge that the church faced, that I mentioned briefly at the end, was the teaching ministry. Paul, uh, when he made his last visit to the church of Ephesus, stopped in and saw the elders. And one of the things he said to them is that he made a prophetic statement that savage wolves are going to come from among you to attack the church. Think how piercing those words must have been to the elders who heard that. If you go on and read the books of Timothy, Paul's protege, who he left in Ephesus, Paul speaks extensively to Timothy about this issue of false doctrine. If You're welcome to look, but 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And then later in the letter he writes in chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. By far the greatest problem the church of Ephesus was facing because Paul deals with it so extensively with Timothy, was the false teaching. It was not from without, but it was from within. Yet with all these problems and some of the great things that were happening in church and the great difficulties, the one sure thing Paul could count on in the church of Ephesus was their love for him. The book of Acts tells us that Paul visited Ephesus three times. Three times he spent time there. First, his initial visit, which I talked about last week, in which they said, please stay. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. i got to go fulfill a vow, but I'll try to return. The second time he spent two years there, and great events happened during that time. That's when the riot happened. And he also led the disciples of John the Baptist to Christ. Many great things were happening. But then there was a third trip where he stopped in, and he couldn't spend much time there because he needed to get to Jerusalem. And that is when he spoke to the elders of the Ephesians church and had such an intimate dialogue. I want you to hear what happened as a result at the end of that dialogue. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Luke records this. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when they had parted from them, set sail, and we came straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes. If you read the next verse in chapter 21, Luke writes this, that we tore ourselves away from them. 
Some translation says we just left them. But if you look in the Greek, the word there is tearing away. It's almost like the ripping of a garment. And I think Luke chooses to use this word to say there was a depth of love between Paul and the Ephesians church that was much greater than most. They loved this man and Paul loved him. So Paul, realizing this church has great problems from without and from within, and desperately wants to comfort and guide the Ephesians church from his prison in Rome to encourage Timothy and to help the work there, wrestled with some great questions. How do you effectively minister to a group that's been marginalized, that's been attacked from within and without, and who lives in a city where many do not like them? Many, in fact, hate them. How do you do that? How do you pastorally comfort them? Well, I believe what Paul does and what we'll see in the next weeks to come is Paul begins by reminding them about God's eternal purposes. Because one of the great adages you've heard in life is don't lose sight of the forest just because you see all the trees. And I believe that's what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to pull the Ephesians church sort of out of these intense things that were going around them and these concerns which were real and legit, but also to see God's big plan and purpose. And so he begins his letter with three simple things. First, who it's from. Second, who it's for. And then third, a prayer of blessing. Now, Almost in every salutation from Paul, we learn a little bit about the letter's intention of what Paul wants to communicate. Paul does this. The first thing he says is, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul very much communicates his new name. His original name was Saul. Paul is now his name he has changed to mean little one. Sort of communicates his humility that he doesn't consider himself great. But then he goes on to say, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now this word apostle is from the Greek word apostolos. And there's three, major, three different meanings that the New Testament teaches us about apostolos. Jesus used it for himself in Hebrews chapter 3.1 as the Son of God who was sent into the world. Apostolos means sent one. Someone who is sent out. So Jesus considered himself apostolos. He was sent from heaven to the world. Next, of course, Jesus used it for the twelve. He no longer called them disciples, but apostles. Those sent out to go do his ministry. A third uh, uh, use of the word apostolos sort of conveys the idea of missionary. If you read the end of Romans... Paul commends Junia and Junius as being apostles, people who were sent out as missionaries from the church to go testify to God's glory. But what Paul is talking about here, when he says an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he is referring to the direct commission that God said to Paul, you are to go and be my apostle. You are to go and be my represented one to lay the foundation of my church. And that's important. When I came into the military, or if you came into the military, there's something that happened. If you come in as an officer, you take what's called a commission. And you have to swear that you are going to represent the Constitution of the United States of America. 
and that you will obey the orders of the officers over you so long as they are lawful and are not contrary to the Constitution or uh, military conduct. You are set apart. You are conveyed authority. Some of you all have different roles in life, whether it's a policeman or if it's a civic service or a politician. Authority is conveyed upon you. It's not yours. It's given to you. And that's what's happening to Paul here. And Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus his call that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, why would that be important? Why do you think Paul says this right from the beginning? Well, I believe one of the significant reasons why it's important is to remind those in Ephesus who he was and who had called him into the ministry that he did. You see, whenever false teachers come into an equation or whenever they're around in ministry, one of their key means of attack is to question the authority of the correct teacher. False teachers will always question the authority of the correct teacher. And let me give you the par example, excellence. In the garden was Satan. And Satan came to Eve and he asked her or he made a statement to her about God. When when he asked, could you eat of the fruit? And Eve said, I cannot. And listen what Satan said. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. One of Satan's most direct and primary attacks on the church and on you and I is for us to question the authority of God's Word and to question the messenger of God's Word. I just recently had someone in my office and they said this statement to me. You know what? I love God, but I was so beaten up by the Bible, I don't trust the Bible. I know I believe in God's nature, but I don't want to listen to this. Now, there's something wrong with that. That's problematic. God's nature is in this. And somehow I apologized to her. I said, I'm sorry because, you know what, if you, if you know God, he, he is exactly the same in this. There is no difference. And either a teacher messed up your thinking or someone else did, but there's no discongruity between the two. They are one and in the same. So I believe what Paul wanted to get out here was to remind the church in Ephesus, though I've left you, I'm not dead yet. And I will remind you of the authority that was conveyed upon me to go be God's messenger, to go be God's apostle. Well, next he goes on to say, to the recipients, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And Paul labels the Ephesians with two labels. He calls them saints and he calls them faithful. Now let me make something clear here what we're not talking about. We're not talking about what the Catholic Church labels a person a saint. That is not what Paul is in reference to. The way the Catholic Church labels a person a saint is they look at someone who has done some great merit or some great work of service in the church and then that person is nominated forward. And then they have someone, actually they use the term called a devil's advocate. And that person critiques 
or brings accusations against that person's character to say why they don't deserve to be called the saint. And if the church rules that that's not true, then they award that person with sainthood. Brothers and sisters, that is not the New Testament teaching of sainthood. That is a work of the the Catholic Church, but that is not what the Bible teaches as sainthood. The Bible defines sainthood as those who are set apart by God. They are picked out. They are chosen. They are set apart. It's not for the spiritually elite, but those who are transformed by the power of Christ through His resurrection and death. And one thing we should all know is that every Christian is a saint, and every saint is a Christian. There is no difference. By being set apart, it does not mean that we're taken out of the world. We're left in the world. But it does mean we are no longer the world's possessions. We are now God's possessions. The ownership is His. And it's intimate. And we are called to live as saints because we belong to a different kingdom. And even though we're saved by faith alone, we are not saved by faith which is alone. Faith in Christ is always accompanied with good works. That is true of the saint. They are called apart. They are set apart by God. And along with that comes a transition, a transformation, the Bible tells us. Galatians 2.20 is one of those great verses on that. We are no longer own, but we are Christ. And what does that look like now to the saints? Well, they are faithful. You see, people become faithful as they are transformed by God's grace. They are given a new nature. One not in rebellion to God, but one growing in desire and commitment to honor their new Lord. It's like John Piper's book. Great book, Desiring God. When Christ comes into your and my life, I'm no longer living for, as my wife would say, Dougie. I have new ownership. I have a new emotion in my life. I don't live to just please me or make me smile, though that's still there and I battle with that. I now have a new Lord that I want to please. And I have a new uh, emotion, a new desire, a new hunger that I want to please God. If you have a person who comes in your life and says, yes, I believe in God, but has no desire to honor God, then something's wrong with their testimony. You cannot have God in your life and not desire God at the same time. You must have God in your life to desire Him. And notice this idea of faithfulness is not just initial. It's continuous. It's not a singular event. It continues to happen on. As we have Christ, we are in Him. And these two labels of saints and faithfulness as Sinclair Ferguson points out, sort of summarize the whole letter. Chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians describe how Paul, or I'm sorry, how God makes us Christ, makes us in Christ, and sets us apart as saints. That's what chapters 1 and 3 do. And chapters 4 through 6 describe how the saints are to be faithful to Christ by being in Christ. You see how profound this letter is? He's already told you the divisions of his letter in the opening marks. Now that's intelligence. That's something I don't have. I'm not that sharp of a tool in the old tool shed. But this is Paul. And he's already laying the groundwork here. But he goes on to add more to that. 
Where are the saints and the faithful found? He tells us, in Christ. The, the theological term for this is union in Christ. And this, this phrase is used abundantly in Ephesians. In the first 23 verses, which is really pretty much one sentence, Paul talks about being in Christ nine times. In the military, when we have something that conveys repetition, we would say that's a foot stomp. That's a message you should get. Now, I'm sure uh, Dick Riggleman, when he was a master sergeant, gave those foot stomp messages. Those are messages to drive in a home a point. And this union in Christ is huge. By being in Christ, he means being joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true for Jesus is also true for us. On the basis, Paul goes so far to say later in the letter that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I talked about this earlier when I was praying to the Lord and sort of what He's been speaking to me on this is that when we are in Christ, we have everything that Jesus has. We are adopted in. And this whole thing of adoption and being united in Christ is found out throughout this whole letter. And it's huge. It's huge in counseling. I have a person I'm working with right now, and they feel so beaten up. They feel so low about themselves. And the issue isn't about ourselves, because all of us, if we really think about ourselves, we're all pretty low. I mean, honestly. I mean, how many times have we each broken God's commands, and how many times has God reminded us of what the right thing is to do and forgiven us, and we go back and do it all over again? That's pretty low. But when you read and you and I read and we get in our heads that we are united in Christ and we have all the blessings with Him, that changes how you see yourself. You see your worth found in Christ. You see that you're beloved from all eternity, that you're adopted with a fatherly care that transcends even the best father who has ever lived on the face of the earth. He cares for each each of us, you and I, and He knows the specific intricacies of each of us. He knows what makes each of us tick and what, what destroys each of our sort of demeanor. And that's what we have in Christ. We have this tremendous relationship. And it's this union that God wants us to know about. He wants us to know that we are saints and that we are faithful in Christ. Now notice something I want you to see in your text. If you've got your Bible, this is the only place you're going to see it at. If you look at your Bible, you will notice that the word Ephesus either has a footnote in it or it's in italics. It's not written in your normal uh, script. And there's a reason for this. Because at the bottom of your Bible, you'll notice next to the footnote or next to the italics is that the phrase in Ephesus is missing in most of the manuscripts. In most of the earliest manuscripts, that phrase, in Ephesus, is missing. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, some people will say, well, uh, this letter really is falsely named. It's not for the Ephesians church. Well, we don't quite know that. We know that Tychicus carried a letter with him. We read that uh, in Philemon and Colossians. And at the end of the Colossians, we're told, uh, Paul tells the Colossians church to swap letters with the church in Laodicea. 
And evidently, Paul had given Tychicus a number of letters to bring to the churches in that region. And though we might think this letter is only for the Ephesians, or it may not be for the Ephesians, what's true is it's for all of us. It's for God's church. It's for those brothers and sisters who are in Christ. This letter is for us, and it's to teach us what it means to be in Christ. Well, after giving his opening salutation, Paul, as he customarily does, adds a blessing. You know, Paul is a good rabbi. He begins with a blessing. And notice what he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us know that grace means God's unmerited favor. It's what God gives to us that we have neither earned nor deserved nor have been born into. It is just given to us. And the first three chapters, Paul describes of what that grace entails. He goes into great detail of explaining the work of the Trinity in chapter 1 and how that blesses us. He then goes on to pray for the church in Ephesus that they might know the immeasurable riches that are ours in Christ. And then after that, in chapter 2, he expounds greatly on how does this thing called grace works He talks about our state before grace, our state what happens in grace, and what happens as a result of grace. And then he talks about how that grace destroyed the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. He reveals what's called the mystery, and we're going to look at that later on, of how Paul or how God makes these two groups, these two separate groups, Jews and Gentiles, now one in Christ. And then from that, he explains the whole working of the church, how the church builds up itself in grace, how God gives certain gifts and abilities to each of us to build up this church in Christ Jesus. That's how grace works. But notice a second thing happens. Peace happens. Paul explains in 4, 5, and 6 that peace that we can have with God by honoring Him. It's that peace that God wants to extend to you and I. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm walking with God, I feel His peace. But when I'm not walking with God, when I don't do what I should do, or when I break what I shouldn't do, I I experience discomfort. I experience a little distance. And that's not peace, is it? You see, Paul wants to help us to understand that grace leads to peace. And these two things bookend the letter. Grace in the first three chapters and how to accomplish peace, how to have peace with God by walking pleasing to Him in the final three chapters. If you have your book of Ephesians, I also want you to notice one other thing about grace and peace, and how significant it is in this book. Look at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 6. Verse 23 reads, Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Grace and peace are all over this letter. As Sinclair Ferguson wrote, grace will lead us to peace and peace will always rest on grace. That's what we're going to find from this letter. So now that you've heard an introduction, how does this letter relate to you? Well, let me just ask you some questions. 
Do you struggle to know God's will and plan? Do you wonder what He's up to? Well, this letter is for you. Or do you struggle with guilt from your past? Or maybe there's some sins that continue to berate you. This letter will explain that how you're a saint and forgiven in Christ and how His peace is now yours. Are you confused about how you came to Christ or how God saves a person? Well, this letter is for you. Do you understand His salvation but have trouble in gaining ground and being faithful to God? In other words, are you having trouble living out this thing called the Christian life? Well, this letter is for you. And do you wrestle, as I said earlier, with your self-image or struggle with your worth? Well, this letter is abundantly for you. It teaches us what it means to be in Christ. In this correspondence to the Ephesians, we will find how God made us saints, how we are to be faithful to our new Lord, that our God wants us to know grace and peace, and that the power source, the key factor, is that it is being in Christ, being united with Him. So let me give you some homework if I might dare say that. My homework is that you would read the book of Ephesians. And you would sort of divide up your book of Ephesians in one, how you're made a saint and how you're made faithful to Him. And secondly, where does God's grace and peace come from besides the opening and closing letters of this great letter? It doesn't happen just at those opening and closing verses. Grace and peace is found throughout. So be a good student. Be investigative. Dig into this thing and say, Lord, you have treasures for me to see. You can help me to understand, Spirit of Life. Open my mind and illuminate my heart and help me to see the glories which are made known to, our, to this church, me, so that I might live out your glories here in Tucson and to the world you've called me to. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for Paul. And uh, God, I thank you that you worked through his intelligence to teach your church, not only back then, but now in Tucson. And I would ask that you would help us to see how we're saints, how we're faithful in Christ. And secondly, Lord, that we would experience your grace and your peace to a new level. And then lastly, Lord, we would see how true these are your words, words that we want to sear on our hearts and abide them in our lives for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.